the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Todd Nettleton. He's the Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for The Voice of the Martyrs. He's also the host of their radio program. We're going to talk about their effort, their call, if you will, to believers here to pray for persecuted believers in China during the Winter Olympic Games. We'll explain why that's important and how you can join other believers from around the globe. So that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll also talk about the uh, Congress's Compete with China effort, whether or not it actually does what the title would suggest is a matter of opinion. Well, more than opinion. But anyway, we'll talk a little bit about that as well in the second hour of today's program. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown delivered her final State of the State address on Thursday, outlining her priorities and legislative agenda for the rest of the year. It comes as the Oregon legislature convenes for the first week of this year's 35-day short session scheduled to run through early March. Well, the governor recently proposed a $200 million package for the legislature to consider called Future Ready Oregon. It's aimed at bolstering the state's workforce and providing support to populations that have been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. She also asked for $500 million to be saved for a rainy day fund. Well, other legislative proposals for the short session include plans to expand high-speed Internet access in rural parts of the state, funding to boost affordable housing efforts, and a plan to relocate Portland's Harriet Tubman Middle School to make room for the planned Interstate 5 Rose Quarter expansion. Well, the governor's current term ends January of 2023, and term limits prevent her from running for re-election this year, making this her final state-of-the-state address, unless she were to win an additional non-consecutive term as governor in a future election. Now, you might recall she ended up being the governor because the former governor who ran uh, disqualified himself, um, well, or was at least disqualified, and she ended up in that position. Anyway, she previously served as Oregon's Secretary of State. She took office as governor in February of 2015, and that was when Governor John Kitzhaber resigned with the ethics scandal shortly after the start of um, his fourth term. She won a special election in 2016 to serve out the remaining two years of his term and was reelected for a second term in 2018. So this was her last state of the state address. Well, on Thursday, February 3rd of this year, President Joe Biden spoke at the 70th annual National Prayer Breakfast, which began in 1953 by President Dwight Eisenhower. Well, at the National Prayer Breakfast on the first Thursday of every February, you might want to mark your calendar, the President of the United States and a guest whose identity is kept confidential until the morning of speak at the event, which is attended by some 3,500 guests from more than 100 countries. Well, this Thursday, which would, of course, be today, the president uh, addressed the faith-filled gathering, the 70th annual prayer breakfast from the National Capital Visitor Center, although the event on uh, Thursday also broadly includes a series of meetings, luncheons, and dinners. 
Um, the schedule began at 8.30 a.m. on Capitol Hill. And you might recall that he made his way uh, to uh, visit a, a violence-strapped uh, state, which we'll talk about later in the program. Well, the vice president uh, was in attendance. The event this year was co-chaired by Senators uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Mike Rounds, both uh, a Republican and Democrat, established in 1953 by President Dwight Eisenhower at the urging of the late Reverend Billy Graham. The prayer breakfast has been hosted by members of Congress and is organized on their behalf by the Fellowship Foundation. Well, the Christian nonprofit was founded by Abraham Verady, a Methodist pastor based out of Seattle. Well, the event was initially called the Presidential Prayer Breakfast. In 1970, the name was changed to the National Prayer Breakfast. And every American president since Eisenhower has taken part in that annual event. And this year, of course, was no exception. Well, speaking in 2017 at the event, then President Donald Trump said, as long as we have God, we are never, ever alone. Well, past speakers at the National Prayer Breakfast over the years include Mother Teresa Bono or Bono. How do you pronounce it? Bono? Uh, Blair, uh, Tony Blair, Dr. Ben Carson, Max Lucado, uh, Arthur Brooks and Gary Haugen, the CEO of the International Justice Mission. And since its inception in the U.S. Capitol, several states and cities, as well as other counties, uh, rather countries, including Australia and the United Kingdom, started their own annual prayer breakfast event. Now, one would hope it would actually be a prayer event, but they evolve over time. Well, the president in his presentation stressed the need to improve political civility in the United States during his remarks at the 70th annual National Day of Prayer in Washington. This in the wake of his rather strong remarks against uh, those who would oppose his voting bill, referring to them in terms not heard since Jim Crow, held Thursday morning at the National Capitol Visitor Center, a smaller venue with a smaller crowd compared to past years due to the pandemic. The president was among those uh, who spoke. Well, after talking about his late son, Bo, whose birthday fell on the uh, same day as the breakfast, the president talked about how he believed the United States Senate was more civil uh, years before. There's a lot of good friends, uh, both sides of the aisle, who disagreed on many, many things, who still talk to and listen to one another, the president recounted. One of the things I don't know for sure, but I think is missing in the Congress, is that they don't spend as much time with one another as we used to. Well, the president recalled how when he was in the Senate, members of different parties would regularly have lunch together at a local diner and they would learn about each other's personal plans. He remembered forming friendships with people and having good interactions with people like U.S. Senator John Stennis of Mississippi, who avidly supported racial segregation. Biden believed that no matter how badly you disagree with a political opponent, when you know one another, then it's hard to dislike the person. We had a lot of um, flat out old segregationist still in our caucus, the president said, remembering that Teddy Kennedy would uh, argue like, well, heck, with a segregationist and then they would go have lunch. Well, the issue for us is unity, he went on to say. How do we unite us, uh, unite again? Unity is elusive, but it's really actually necessary. Unity doesn't mean we have to agree on everything. Um, but unity is where enough of us believe is uh, uh, believe rather in a core 
of basic things. Well, he went on to remark that he believed that faith can move us together and it recognizes the value of everyone and that if a house divided cannot stand, surely a house united can do anything. With the history and God watching, we will have to prove that there is nothing beyond the capacity of the United States when we're united. Well, other speakers at the event included Byron Stevenson, the best-selling author, uh, author rather, of Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, members of Congress and Vice President Kamala Harris. During her brief remarks, the vice president talked about the trauma people have experienced from the pandemic, explaining that all of us have had a loss of a sense of normalcy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we'll return. I hope you will, too. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Yes, we're back. <laughs> You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation in the second hour of today's program with Todd Nettleton. He's the chief of the media relationship relations rather and message integration for Voice of the Martyrs, their campaign to encourage believers to pray for persecuted Christians uh, during the Winter Olympic Games will be the uh, subject of our conversation and get a bit of an insight of what it's like to be a follower of Jesus in the People's Republic of China under communist rule. Well, the U.S. Special Operations Counterterrorism Mission in North Syria today that killed ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi, and there's more, was long planned and on the level and scale of the U.S. operation to take out Osama bin Laden in 2011. That's a quote from senior administration officials. Uh, uh, U.S. military forces today successfully moved in on the global leader of ISIS, also known as, whose name I won't attempt to mispronounce, President Biden said uh, today as well, he took over as the leader of the Islamic State in 2019 after the U.S. counterterrorism operation that killed Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Well, senior administration officials said that he detonated explosives, which killed himself, his wife and the children in their residence. Officials added that the uh, they believe he chose to live in a building with many residential families not linked to ISIS on purpose. Human shields. Well, officials suggested he could have been wearing a suicide vest, which they said for a mission of this level are a commonly used tactic, adding that the U.S. assault force team was well outside the range of what they assessed to be the likely explosive impact. Well, senior administration officials said that the intelligence for this operation came in early December. But officials said that the planning for today's operation was on the level and scale of the bin Laden raid, noting that the target never left his home and only occasionally went to the rooftop to bathe. He lived on the third floor of the compound. He relied on couriers and a lieutenant who lived on the second floor to operate his global network. Uh, Biden was first briefed in December, gave the order to go ahead with the operation early Tuesday morning in the Oval Office, where his national security team and commanders presented options. Now, this is interesting because you might recall Vice President Biden opposed the um, uh, operation to uh, find Osama bin Laden. Uh, in early December, commanders brought a tabletop model of the compound into the Situation Room. They presented their assessment of the operation. An official said the raid was viewed as one of significant risk, assessed it to be incredibly complex and dangerous, but decided to move forward. A national security source said that the at the time of his death, the Department of Justice had a standing reward offer of $10 million for any information leading to the identification or location of this individual. The offer was active uh, on advice from 
U.S. and Iraqi intelligence agencies. Well, given the large number of children believed to be inside that building and the fact that it was a residential building, the president opted for a commando raid using ground forces and not an airstrike that would have destroyed the entire residential compound. The president said today that he directed the Department of Defense to take every precaution possible to minimize civilian casualties. Well, Nancy Pelosi is warning Olympic athletes against protesting China at the Beijing Olympics. She slammed the Chinese government and its practices and the International Olympic Committee for choosing the venue, but suggested that athletes should not risk um, protesting while they're at the Games. And there's a lot of speculation about what's actually going to happen. There's a contingent that has decided they will not be a part of the opening ceremony as a form of protest without actually saying that's the uh, the reason behind it, but nonetheless, a lot of uh, precarious uh, actions being contemplated in anticipation of the opening ceremonies, which in time, uh, Chinese time, may already be taking place. I'm not really sure. I haven't worked that out. Well, in other news, the uh, Depart- the State Department rather on Wednesday validated the authenticity of documents that were leaked to the press that revealed Washington's response to Russian demands in exchange for de-escalating tensions with Ukraine. And U.S. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat from New York, took a new swipe at U.S. Senator Kirsten Sinema, urging Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to make Sinema's life as difficult as possible. I'm guessing she didn't attend the prayer breakfast this morning. Susan Sarandon on Wednesday seemingly shared a message to Twitter comparing cop, uh, cops rather gathering to pay their respects to fallen NYPD officer Jason Rivera to fascists. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be among the headliners when conservatives gather for CPAC in Orlando, Florida, later this month. Hundreds of California police officers turned out on Wednesday to pay their respects to slain Los Angeles police officer Fernando Arroyos, a 27-year-old who died in a shootout with a group of alleged gang members last month. And Dolphins owner, uh, owner rather Stephen Ross, says ex-Dolphins coach Brian Flores' allegations of racial discrimination are false, malicious, and defamatory. We haven't heard the last of that. A number of conservative voices are speaking out in defense of Whoopi Goldberg, the liberal co-host of ABC's The View, who was suspended on Tuesday following her false claim the Holocaust was not about race. At issue, cancel culture. U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican out of Missouri, slammed the Wednesday closed-door Senate hearing on the Biden administration's deadly Afghanistan withdrawal, calling it a joke. And a U.S. intelligence community panel found that causes, or rather cases, of Havana syndrome that have plagued multiple Americans working overseas could be caused by pulsed electromagnetic energy from external sources. And in a demonstration of mandate pushback, 49 Republicans signed a letter pledging to shut down the government over the federal vaccine mandates. Former Republican President George W. Bush donated to two prominent critics of former President Trump, both of whom voted to impeach him toward the end of his term. Well, in opinion, Luke Lindbergh suggests House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the Democrat from California and the Speaker, is rushing to pass the so-called Competes Act before President Biden's State of the Union speech to give him something to talk about. We'll talk more about the um, act, the Competes Act, later in the program. Dr. Jeanette um, Nashwat uh, weighs in, saying, 
As a native New Yorker and a doctor on the front lines of COVID for the past two years, having taken care of over 29, or rather 21,000 COVID patients, I can tell you firsthand there is a second plague. Todd Young on Friday says the Olympic torch will be lit in China's capital. It will be a spectacular opening ceremony with thousands of participants filling the bird's nest. Its choreography will be innovative. Its artistry unprecedented. Its message will be moving, socially conscious and environmentally aware. And not a single American government official will be there to see it. We're sending our regrets to the Chinese Communist Party, refusing to join the games hosted in their capital city. Why? A million Uyghurs. Kazakhs and Kirzaks are locked away in gulags. They are raped, tortured with electric batons, sterilized and forced into abortions. Taiwan's sovereignty is continually threatened. Hong Kong's democracy is strangled. There and across the Chinese Communist Party's domain, dissidents, whistleblowers and protesters have been apprehended, imprisoned, without trial, persecuted and reeducated. Among them, Christians. Free speech is stifled, expression censored, and religious freedom denied. The Olympic Games in Beijing, spit and polish, even carbon neutral, may present the face of a humane and caring world power, but we are not fooled. We see through the charade, a slave state hosting the Olympians, its participants wearing uniforms made by Uyghurs, tortured and toiling in labor camps. Also, many of the souvenirs will have been Uh, produced by Uyghurs tortured and toiling in labor camps. In other news, Jeff Bezos will pay for Rotterdam to partially dismantle a nearly 145-year-old bridge so he can sail his $485 million superyacht out after finishing construction on the vessel. Wow, what a problem to have. I thought backing out of my driveway every morning was a challenge. Well, travel industry leaders argued in a letter sent to the White House that the Biden administration should end its COVID-19 testing requirement for vaccinated passengers prior to traveling to the U.S. because the virus is so widespread in the states. FBI Director Ray, uh, he says the level of Chinese spying blew me away. That's his actual uh, quote, Chinese spying in the U.S. has become so widespread that the FBI is launching an average of two counterintelligence investigations a day to counter the onslaught. FBI Director Christopher Ray said in an interview, Jeff Zucker has resigned at CNN over an undisclosed relationship with a colleague. Zucker, who has helmed the cable network for nine years, told colleagues in a memo that the relationship came up during the CNN's probe of Chris Cuomo's alleged sexual harassment. As part of the investigation into Cuomo's tenure at CNN, I was asked about a consensual relationship with my closest colleague, someone I have worked with for more than 20 years, Zucker wrote in a memo. I acknowledge the relationship evolved in recent years, he wrote. I was required to disclose it when it began, but I didn't. I was wrong. Well, some at CNN want Brian Stetler fired for not exposing Zucker. It was a well-known secret, apparently. The CNN insider said he is alleging allegedly our top media reporter, yet he failed to report on the scoop that everyone in the office knew. And if he wants to uh, say he didn't know, he is truly terrible at his job. More key demogra- uh, demographic Democrats watch Fox News than CNN or MSNBC. In total day viewership, Fox News grabbed 42% of Democrats aged 25 to 54, CNN nabbed 33%, and MSNBC got 25%. 
The story also notes Fox News also commanded the largest number of independents in the key news demo during primetime and total day hours. 55% of those, 25 to 54, watched the network in primetime, compared to CNN's 23% and MSNBC's 22%. During total day hours, 58% of independents in the demo watched Fox News, 18% chose MSNBC, and 25% selected CNN. Well, the U.S. debt has crossed $30 trillion. From the Wall Street Journal editorial board, the first point is that the debt really isn't $30 trillion. About $6 trillion of that is debt the government owes to itself and Social Security and other IOUs. Social Security is a promise made by politicians to workers. It isn't a contractual debt like a Treasury bill that must be repaid or risk default. Future politicians can refuse to pay workers what they owe, and eventually they will. The debt held by the public is some $24 trillion, which is bad enough. That's more than 100% of GDP, a level the U.S. has previously reached only during wartime. Much of this debt is held by Japanese or Chinese uh, who won't take kindly to not being repaid. But they'll keep lending that money as long as they assume they will be repaid. The real issue is interest on all that debt and what it means for the federal um, fiscal. The uh, debt costs very little when interest rates are near zero. But when they rise, as they soon will, the burden of interest costs on the debt rises, too. But one measure, every percentage point increase in rates adds $100 billion a year or more to debt costs. That must be financed either with higher taxes or more debt. $30 trillion. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the news stories of the day. Coming up in the second hour, Todd Nettleton with Voice of the Martyrs. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to talking with Todd Nettleton, Chief of Media Relations with Voice of the Martyrs. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. They're calling for uh, believers here to pray for persecuted Chinese believers during the Winter Olympic Games. We'll give you all the important details, or you can go to their website for that information. Well, more than three quarters of students at a Baltimore high school read at a elementary school level or lower. The teacher came to the media with the information. The teacher works at Patterson High School, one of the largest high schools in Baltimore, with a 61% graduation rate and a nearly $12 million budget. We agreed not to identify the source who fears retribution for giving Project Baltimore the results of iReady assessments. Well, some woke employees at Spotify see the Rogan controversy as an opportunity to act. Dozens of workers on the company-wide Internet, um, or rather internal chat system, said that they were embarrassed to work at the Swedish auto audio company, which has long been known for egalitarian uh, values, consensus-driven decision-making, and a relaxed, music-loving culture. Well, some said they knew healthcare workers who were aghast at Spotify's support of Rogan, according to the company's documents and screenshots of the con- the conversations reviewed by the Washington Post. Well, later in that same article, some employees have become disillusioned with their uh, that their protests about Rogan and other controversial podcasters were falling on deaf ears. Still later, we finally get what they really want. That new direction, the people say, requires uh, Spotify to change its ethos and engage in greater editorial oversight, which means, of course, censor anything they consider challenging. A video has surfaced of a New York professor defending pedophilia. Sadly, it's uh, creeping closer 
to the left of center mainstream. Professor Stephen Kirshner said a very standard, a very widely held view is that there's something deeply wrong about this and it's wrong independent of its being criminalized. It's not obvious to me that it's in fact wrong. I think this is a mistake and I think exploring that why it's a mistake will tell us not only things about adult sex and statutory rape and also fundamental principles of morality. I wonder if he's still... As his job, a Loudoun County school district claims maskless students are trespassing if they return before their 10 day suspension. Celebrity judges walked off the set of the masked singer over Rudy Giuliani's appearance. Rudy Giuliani was on the masked singer. Anyway, the left is growing more and more incapable of being around anyone with whom they don't completely agree. Well, the Los Angeles mayor claims he held his breath in his uh, maskless photo Because officials can do that. He was uh, caught as the photo went viral, and that's the best excuse he could come up with. Uh, Barry Weiss says, who summed up the response of many, I can't stop laughing. Well, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says Wednesday that President Joe Biden's uh, record uh, speaking for itself when it uh, comes to nominating an extraordinarily diverse bunch of qualified individuals to serve on the courts. That after a reporter asked the White House press secretary if Biden will pledge to nominate an Asian-American or LGBTQ Supreme Court justice. Well, CBS White House correspondent uh, uh, Weijia Jiang uh, asked if there's another vacancy on the court, whether the president will make that pledge. And then just one more on the Supreme Court. Given the president's commitment to diversity, it will he um, uh, diversity it. Will he make similar pledges should he have another opportunity? For example, there's never been an Asian American justice or an LGBTQ justice. So will he make a similar pledge? The question went, well, I would say that about uh, judges or just in general, I would say that if you look at the president's record of judges, circuit court judges, lower court judges, it speaks for itself. The press secretary said, of course, not answering the question. He has uh, had an enormous number of justices. He uh, judges he has nominated who are people of color, who are women. He has nominated and confirmed an extraordinarily diverse bench of qualified individuals to serve on the court. And that is certainly a priority for him, she went on to say. Again, not answering the question. I don't have any new pledges to announce for you, but I think it would uh, point I would point you to his record, which speak. And she went on to say the same thing. So every group needs to be represented. Um, and so the, the we're going to need more Supreme Court justices to cover it all. Well, job openings have reached a near record high, but that trend may not last. The Bureau of Labor Statistics report for December found that the number of job openings remained near record levels with 10.9 million unfilled. Likewise, the percentage of workers quitting their jobs hovered near record levels at 2.9 percent, slightly down from November's 3 percent. Meanwhile, January jobs numbers might come in with an unexpected whiplash. Citing payroll company ADP, CNBC says private payrolls fell 301,000 for the month, well below the Dow Jones estimate of growth at 200,000. Naturally, the Omicron variant wave has been blamed for the downturn. Furthermore, some believe the economy is near full employment, which seems awfully strange given the fact that four million fewer people are employed today than prior to COVID. 
Well, Black Lives Matter, or BLM, has terminated all fundraising following the Washington Examiner's investigative reporting on the the, uh, opaque financial activities of the organization. California's Justice Department threatened to investigate the charity if it didn't immediately stop fundraising. The Examiner discovered that BLM has had no known leader in charge of its $60 million bankroll since its co-founder resigned in May, and that the organization failed to report information regarding its finances in 2020, a year in which it raised tens of millions in donations. Washington State, likewise, issued an immediate cease fundraising order, but it's not just California and Washington in seven other states lending more um I should say the Marxist organization is also out of compliance in seven other states, lending more credence to the charge that its leaders are little other than race huskers grifting off uh, grievances. BLM has announced it has ceased all fundraising. The Biden administration was asleep at the wheel on Afghanistan, according to newly uncovered documents revealed that the administration was woefully unprepared for the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And President Biden is nearing the worst president ever territory, according to poll numbers. Joe Biden may want to avoid glancing at the latest poll data, as not only has his approval rating continued to crater, but his disapproval numbers keep climbing. As Rasmussen puts it, most voters think President Joe Biden is one of the worst ever to hold the office and rank him below his two immediate predecessors in the White House. Even Donald Trump, who was demonized as a racist and bigot and received little other than nonstop negative press and fake news over the mainstream media, didn't reach numbers even close to this bad. A whopping 54 percent of Americans now rate Biden as the worst president in American history. Gallup observed collectively satisfaction at the start of 2022 in a variety of areas is about as bad as it's been in two decades of Gallup measurement. Even every step rather Biden takes seems to only push him deeper into negative territory somewhere. Jimmy Carter is smiling. And this is among both Democrats and Republicans. Well, as ISIS leader um, and ISIS leader was killed in a U.S. special operations raid in Syria today, over a million have fled as Afghanistan's economy continues to collapse. President Biden, ahead of a New York City visit, rolled out a strategy to stop the flow of guns and the army has begun the immediate discharge of all unvaccinated soldiers. Tucker Carlson tonight is the most watched cable news show among Democrats in one key age group, according to the new TV viewership data released by Nielsen MRI Fusion. Carlson's primetime show is the number one most watched show among Democrats in the key demographic of 25 to 54 years old. It airs on Fox News. Facebook is shrinking. Its total user base declined for the first time, putting more pressure on its big metaverse bet. And the labor shortage crisis is getting so bad that Domino's is literally paying customers to pick up their own pizza rather than get it delivered or have it delivered. NRA revenues have been cut in half since 2018, but legal spending spiked in 2021. On this day in history, 1959, the day the music died, rock and roll stars Buddy Holly Ritchie, Valens and J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson die in a small plane crash near Clear Lake, Iowa. 
1690. The first paper money in America is issued by the Massachusetts Bay Colony to finance a military expedition to Canada. 1913, the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution providing for a federal income tax is ratified. 1930, William Howard Taft, the 27th president of the United States, resigns as chief justice for health reasons. He would die just over a month later. 1943, during World War II, the U.S. transport ship SS Dorchester, which is carrying troops to Greenland, sinks after being hit by a German torpedo in the Labrador Sea. Of the more than 900 men aboard, only 230 survive. 1966, the Soviet probe Luna 9 becomes the first man-made object to make a soft landing on the moon. 1988, the U.S. House of Representatives hands President Ronald Reagan a major defeat, rejecting his request for $36.2 million in new aid to the Nicaraguan Contras by a vote of 2019, or rather 219 to 211. 1994, the space shuttle Discovery lifts off, carrying Sergei Kirkalev, the first Russian cosmonaut to fly aboard a U.S. spacecraft. And finally, on this day in history, actually one more, Discovery blasts off in 1995 off with a woman, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Eileen Collins, in the pilot seat for the first time in NASA's history. And now finally, 1998, Texas executes Carla Faye Tucker, 38, for the pickaxe killing of two people in 1983. She's the first woman executed in the United States since 1984. You might recall efforts to stay her execution after she professed Christian faith while incarcerated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a Johns Hopkins University meta-analysis released in January found that lockdowns across Europe and the United States reduced the COVID-19 mortality rate by 0.2%. 0.2%. The researchers' analysis of lockdown measures included school closures, business closures, bans on international travel and internal movement, and other non-pharmaceutical government mandates, such as mask mandates. Well, the study also found that uh, shelter-in-place orders were ineffective, reducing mortality by only 2.9%. While this meta-analysis concludes that lockdowns have had little to no public health effects, they have imposed enormous economic and social costs, the study concluded. In consequence, lockdown policies are ill-founded and should be rejected as a pandemic policy instrument. End quote. It goes on. Lockdowns have limited people's access to safe outdoor places such as beaches, parks and zoos or include uh, included outdoor mask mandates or strict outdoor gathering restrictions, pushing people to meet at less safe indoor places. The researcher noted uh, we do find some evidence that limiting gatherings was counterproductive and increased COVID-19 mortality. Now, Johns Hopkins University itself made classes fully remote in the fall of 2020 semester and urged their students not to travel to Baltimore before moving to a partially in-person model in the spring of last year. Well, the school still imposes a mask mandate, requires two masks or a surgical grade mask, despite nearly universal vaccination of students and staff, a booster shot and a twice weekly testing requirement. Well, COVID-19-related school closures, government-imposed mask mandates, and restrictions on travel are still prevalent in the United States and internationally. And it's fascinating that um, studies, and this is from Johns Hopkins University, often cited as a reliable source for information related to the pandemic, 
has contradicted its own practice and is being uh, highly disregarded. In fact, um, the findings of this study, when referenced elsewhere, is considered misinformation, which explains, at least in part, why the lack of confidence in much of what's being said and done has continued to grow. Meanwhile, when you think of Google, Facebook, Twitter, Apple and the like, think the enemy, because that's what they are. If you love freedom, if you cherish your God-given liberties, then your best interests are at odds with big tech. So writes Douglas Andrews, um, suggesting that big tech that canceled the freedom convoy is evidence of just that. He writes, yesterday, the increasingly active GoFundMe platform froze the fundraising page of Freedom Convoy 2022. That magnificent movement of liberty-loving Canadian truck drivers who set out last week on a 2,000-mile trek from Vancouver to the capital of Ottawa to protest Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's onerous and misguided vaccine mandates and other COVID restrictions. The convoy became a national sensation and its GoFundMe page was, has raised more than $10.1 million since its inception in mid-January. As reported, the amount far exceeded the amount raised by Canada's major political parties last quarter. Well, the trucker's message, which appears on the GoFundMe page, is straightforward. To our fellow Canadians, they write, the time for political overreach is over. Our current government is implementing rules and mandates that are destroying the foundation of our businesses, industries and livelihoods. Canadians have been integral to the fabric of humanity in many ways that have shaped the planet. We are a peaceful country that has helped uh, protect nations across the globe from tyrannical governments who oppress their people. And now it seems it's happening here, end quote. Well, predictably, big tech. Big media, they moved to smash it as a bureaucratic note on the aforementioned GoFundMe page makes clear. This fundraiser is currently paused and under review to ensure it complies with our uh, terms of service and applicable laws and regulations. Our uh, team is working 24-7 and doing all we can to protect both organizers and donors. Thank you for your patience. End quote. Translation, according to Mr. Andrews, your truckers are getting too uppity, so we're shutting you down. Well, unfortunately, there's more where that came from. Here in the United States, American truckers followed Canada's lead by organizing their own anti-mandate protest called Convoy to D.C. 2022. In response, the um, censors at Facebook took the extraordinary step of removing the group's Facebook page. Censorship at its finest is how the convoy's organizers termed it. Big tech, of course, has us by the short hairs, uh, short of going off the grid it's all but impossible to live a life free of regular interaction with it or dependent upon the many useful and addictive it innovations of silicon valley we may loathe these masters of the universe but we continue to enrich them it doesn't have to be this way though in his 2021 book the tyranny of big tech missouri republican senator josh hawley writes and i quote victory against big tech's pathologies requires that we reinvigorate family, neighborhood, school, and church, the places where, in authentic community, we come to know ourselves and one another, exercise our responsibilities, and find our sense of belonging. These are the places where we become citizens, where we become free, where we learn to exercise the sovereignty of a citizen in a free republic. Genuine community is now, more than ever, countercultural, and opposed to the ersatz uh, global community, pushed by the corrupt and power-hungry big tech. Well, he also stressed, and that's end quote, he also stressed the need for a new politics to push back against what he rightly calls the triumph of corporate liberalism. 
To do so, we must work to elect representatives who recognize big tech as the enemy, as a malign force worth fighting, and that fight uh, begins by dismantling the framework that gave rise to big tech, the lax antitrust enforcement and outdated antitrust laws, the cozy and often incestuous relationship between the Beltway and Silicon Valley, and the special regulations and the uh, carve-outs in the law that at one time helped nurture and sustain a fledgling IT industry, but now, bizarrely, makes big tech even stronger. Here in our humble shop, he writes, we're also at the mercy of big tech, at least to some extent. You might well have found this article on your Facebook page, which currently has more than 715,000 followers and is powerful platform on which uh, to push our message. And yet, as Mark Alexander has written, our success makes us subject to their Orwellian practices of redefining and shadow banning. We know how these truckers feel and we encourage them. And if we choose not to fight back against government tyranny and its big tech censors, may our chains sit lightly upon us. An interesting perspective that was published in the Patriot Post, Douglas Andrew, the uh, the author. Well, the president uh, made his way to New York earlier today. Now, he was criticized because he didn't attend the funeral of one of the New York police officers who was gunned down uh, there in another example of violence. But to his credit, when a president makes his way to an event like that, it becomes more about the president and his entourage than it does about the uh, individual whose uh, life is being memorialized. And so it probably was a better idea to come the day after. But nonetheless, um, he's being... um, uh, called out for the approach he took once he did arrive earlier today. Well, House GOP leader Kevin McCarthy slammed the president for failing to publicly condemn what he called soft on crime politicians during his visit there uh, in New York today and urged Americans to entrust Republicans with the majority of the House uh, in November so that they can focus on getting criminals off the street. Well, the president, the attorney general Merrick Garland and the vice president traveled to New York City and met with Mayor um, Eric Adams and the New York uh, Governor Kathy Hochul at the New York Police Department headquarters to discuss ways to coordinate federal, state and local resources to combat violent crime. Well, following the president's remark that focused on gun control and providing additional funding to law enforcement, the House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, said that the administration has embraced soft on crime policies. Uh, And I'm quoting soft on crime politicians are destroying our country. Both President Biden and Vice President Harris have indulged the soft on crime um, uh, left for political gain, helping create a climate hostile to law enforcement. It has been an absolute disaster. He went on to say now the president lacks the courage to condemn a prosecutor in New York who refuses to prosecute crime, downgrades felony charges for crimes like armed robbery and releases criminals on low bail. Uh, He referred to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, one of many across the country. McCarthy said that instead, Biden poses for photos and tries to divert attention to gun control as if guns shoot themselves. Well, if Americans entrust House Republicans, and this became a political uh, statement, with the majority, we'll focus on getting criminals off the streets, not invite them to break the law with impunity. Well, McCarthy was uh, referring to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, The president on Thursday didn't address Bragg or his controversial memo released um, last month, which called for Manhattan prosecutors to look for alternatives to prison sentences for criminals convicted of several kinds of offenses and reduce pretrial incarceration unless 
uh, for in very serious cases, which he has defined down. Now, Bragg's memo also directed his office not to prosecute offenders uh, accused of following crimes, barring ex- extenuating circumstances, turnstile jumping, resisting arrest, trespassing, driving without a license, among others. In a different um, example in the memo, Bragg directed prosecutors to reduce armed robbery cases to um, uh, larcenies, barring certain circumstances. But last month, he said his memo left the wrong impression about his law enforcement policy plans and said it left many New Yorkers justifiably concerned about the memos uh, and what it meant more so as uh, guidance for his staff. So he backpedaled just uh, just a bit. But nonetheless, um, during the remarks in New York City Thursday, the president addressed the surge in gun related crimes uh, across the United States, but did not address uh, the choices being made by prosecutors not to hold those responsible for committing those crimes uh, to a high legal standard. Well, we are out of time this first hour. Looking forward to, uh, in the second hour to a conversation with Ted- Todd Nettleton. Uh, with Voice of the Martyrs, we're asking Christians to pray for persecuted believers during the Winter Olympic Games and perhaps beyond if we establish that uh, that heart and that habit. That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. If you've just joined us, we're looking forward to a conversation with Todd Nettleton. He's Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for Voice of the Martyrs USA. He's also host of their radio program. We're going to talk about their call for Christians to pray for persecuted believers in China during the Winter Olympic Games, which are just hours away. And in fact, with uh, China's time, it may be taking place right now. I don't know. But anyway... Uh, The the world's attention will be focused on that for the next couple of weeks, and it's an opportunity for us to remember those who are being persecuted as though we ourselves were being persecuted, as the Scripture says. So we'll talk with him about that. And we'll also take a look at efforts in Congress to address the... um, uh, the, the competition, if you will, with China, and we'll look at what the House is um, recommending and whether or not it accomplishes what the title of the legislation suggests it ought. Well, following uh, Republican walkouts in 2019 and 2020 here in Oregon that denied a vote on Oregon's new cap and trade rules designed to lower greenhouse gas emissions, state officials have gone ahead and drafted the new framework anyway at the behest of an executive order from the governor in 2020. Well, the new rules, and we're talking about cap and trade coming to under to Oregon that began this uh, This year, the new rules took effect at the start of the year, but they're so new that even many officials don't know much about them or how they work, uh, how they work their way through state government. Well, the framework for Oregon's climate protection program, as it's uh, named, which has the ultimate goal of getting statewide emissions to 80 percent below 1990 levels by 2050, will be ramped up over the next decade. Well, the program basically sets caps on greenhouse gas emissions for producers of fossil fuels and energy in Oregon. The caps are based on metric tons of carbon dioxide emitted and set to ramp down in three uh, three year phases. Currently, the cap is set at 200,000 tons per emitter, which will decrease to 100,000 starting in 2025, then lower 
to 25,000 tons by 2031. Well, the current cap applies to some of the biggest energy producers in the state, such as Northwest Natural Gas and BP Products, North America, Inc. But as the caps lower, they're going to apply to more and more entities, even stationary emitters that pollute as a byproduct of their operations, such as cement and steel manufacturers. Well, the state issues um, companies free of charge Um, so-called compliance instruments, uh, which are based on the current caps and then divide among the entities. The state scrapped its earlier plans to have these uh, compliance instruments auctioned off. But if companies can't meet the goals, they can be subject to civil penalties or court actions. But the penalties don't kick in until later phases of this um, this plan. Well, polluters can offset some of the excess through in, uh, investments in projects or programs that bolster Oregon's green energy sector. But the percentage of the emissions caps that can be circumvented through investments is also capped. Initially, entities will be able to offset 10% of their emissions caps with climate investments, and it ramps up to 15 to 20% in the following uh, three-year periods, while the state simultaneously tightens the amount of pollution allowed. Well, that's the cap part of the system. But what about the trade? Well, entities can trade their compliance instruments among themselves or roll them over into next three-year periods by banking them, ostensibly allowing them to legally exceed their now lower maximums if they were under them prior to the new benchmarks. In other words, it's kind of a savings program, if you will. The state will oversee this new marketplace that issues and tracks compliance instruments. Well, there are other components of the state's climate and green energy plans, including bolstering Oregon's electric grid to meet future demand. Another mammoth task, considering the state uh, also wants to um, incentivize more people to buy and drive electric vehicles. Well, the rationale is officials say that these moves are necessary to both protect Oregon from the worsening effects of climate change, like the dry conditions that led to wildfires, and also to ready the state's economy for future market conditions. But while the caps apply to fossil fuel companies, the higher costs at the top of the supply chains have led to fears that they're going to translate into higher costs for those at the bottom. Farmers and those who represent their uh, uh, interests in Salem worry that added costs to local agriculture will hit their profits. Tractors run on diesel, for example. Natural gas such as propane and kerosene are common in agricultural settings. So what will the fallout uh, be uh, for them? Well, these are not new concerns. There have been parts of the opposition to cap and trade program for some 15 years. The state first started looking into emission standards and ways to reduce Oregon's share of pollution in 2007 and paid for another climate assessment in 2013. Uh, These efforts led to the establishment of an emissions reduction goal in 2017. Here we are in 2022. And now cap and trade not voted on by the legislature, but an executive action by the governor took effect in January of this year. Now, I found this um, this next story a little bit um, bizarre, but certainly 21st century. Um, a black representative, uh, he's a Republican, in the Virginia General Assembly said that he was barred from joining the Assembly's Black Caucus. Now, let me repeat the facts. He's a Republican. He's black. He's in the Virginia Assembly, General Assembly, but he was barred from joining the Assembly's Black Caucus. And this is what he said about it. It really did offend me. This is Del Cordoza uh, in an exclusive interview. It was a spit in the face. This says to me that I'm not black enough to be in the black caucus. And that's an insult. 
Well, Cordoza said he wanted to join the Black Caucus to be a conservative voice in the group that is normally very liberal, rather exclusively liberal. I wanted to represent all African-Americans, not just liberal African-Americans. I wanted a seat at the table. When considering his request, uh, he says he was asked to fill out a questionnaire about the legis- his legislative priorities. The last question asked if he opposed any uh, items listed on the Black Caucus 2022 legislative agenda. Cordoza listed 32. I thought they would want to know why I didn't agree with it. I didn't think we would uh, agree on everything, but I thought we would uh, they would let me um, in so that we could. Um, exchange views and they could hear my voice. Well, he said that he is considering making his own caucus. Not sure the value that would have if he's excluded from the only other uh, group that uh, represents the interests of African-Americans. He says it might be a caucus of one, but it will be a caucus when new members come that's going to be welcoming all African-Americans, regardless of their views, because we want the African-American voice to be heard. It's not a singular voice. It has varying points of view, not just um, the reject, uh, rejecting all other black voices. We want a full picture of what it is to be African-American, whether we agree or disagree. We need to come together and say, this is who we are. The Virginia Legislative Black Caucus didn't respond to their rejection, but it raises a uh, just another specter of where we are in the 21st century. You can be African-American bio- biologically, but not African-American enough to be considered black or a member of a black caucus. You can be a male, identify as a woman, and compete against women, but you can't be an Asian and try to identify as a black person because we don't. The lines are so blurred, it's very difficult to know uh, where the truth lies unless you actually look at science and biology and things that tell the truth about who and what we are. But that's where we find ourselves in the 21st century. Black lawmaker can't be a member of the black caucus because he's not black enough I'm not sure how black he would have to be to be black enough but there you have it no fixed lines no certainty just ideology coming up we're going to talk with todd nettleton he's chief of media relations with voice of the martyrs they're uh, engaged in a campaign encouraging christians here to pray for believers in china who are particularly the focus of persecution during the Winter Olympic Games, will tell you how you can be a part of this worldwide effort to pray for them during the uh, two-plus weeks of the Winter Olympics. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Over the next few weeks, the eyes of the world are going to turn toward Beijing and the 2022 Winter Olympic Games. Now, leading up to and during those games, the voice of the martyrs is calling Christians, believers in Jesus, to commit to pray for Chinese Christians suffering persecution at the hands of the oppressive communist government of the host country. Now, as many of you know, I've traveled several times to China. I've met with members of the underground church. I've watched, as many of you have, the changes that have taken place of uh, of late. And we are always, as believers, called to pray for those who are persecuted as if we ourselves are being persecuted. And the Winter Olympic Games gives us an opportunity once again to focus on those who are suffering, to remind us that there are believers all around the globe 
uh, who are suffering persecution because they are faithfully following Christ. Well, Todd Nettleton joins us. He is Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for Voice of the Martyrs USA. He's also the host of Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Joining us to talk about this effort to encourage believers here to pray for believers there. Todd Nettleton, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, there's a lot of controversy around whether or not the Winter Olympic Games should have been given to the People's Republic of China for human rights violations of various sorts. So there's a lot of controversy about the games anyway. But when you consider the impact that these games and quite frankly, prior to the Olympic Games has had on the um, believing community, it really is a call to prayer for all of us. Tell us a little bit about the Voice of the Martyrs campaign. Well, the website is PrayForChina2022.com, PrayForChina2022.com, and we're asking people to make a very simple commitment that during the Olympic Games, they are going to pray for Christians in China. We know Christians are oppressed and persecuted in China. We know there are pastors who are currently in prison there. We want to use the Olympics and all the attention and all the media coverage and all the events as a daily reminder during this period of time. We have family in China. Mm -hmm. We want to pray for them during the Olympics. Yeah. And I should mention that you're also offering prayer updates, uh, encouraging people to uh, pray through social media. To, uh, we can receive prayer reminders uh, on our calendar. So there's a, a great way for us to connect with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't go there and relieve them from their suffering. But as followers of Jesus and being part of members of the body of Christ and part of the same family, we can play a role in ministering to those brothers and sisters by praying for them. We absolutely can. You know, one of the things I have thought about as we have led up to these Olympic Games is uh, something a pastor in Vietnam told one of my colleagues several years ago. He said, when you pray for Vietnam, you are working with us in Vietnam. Uh, And so my thought is, as we pray for China during the next two weeks, during the Olympic Games, we're going to be working side by side with our brothers and sisters who are there. We, We may not speak their language. We may not see them until eternity. But through our prayers, we can work with them during this time period. Now, according to the Voice of the Martyrs 2022 Global Prayer Guide, which I would recommend to all of our listeners, China is classified as a restricted nation. Can you explain what that means yeah, absolutely. We, we talk about Christians who are persecuted in restricted nations or hostile areas. And basically the, the big dividing line there is who is the persecutor? In a restricted nation like China, the persecutor is the government. You're being arrested by the police. You're put, being put on trial in a courtroom that is run by the government. It is the government that is doing the persecution. That's obviously the case with the communist government of China. In a hostile area, the government at least pays lip service to the idea that there is religious freedom, mm-hmm. that you can choose what faith to follow. But within those areas, there are groups, be it terrorist groups, be it some kind of radical group, even sometimes it's members of your own family that come against you. But the government is not the persecutor. That's a hostile area. Restricted nation like China is a place where the government is the one doing the persecution. There's a real price to pay if you confess faith in Jesus Christ in the People's Republic of China. There absolutely is. I think of Pastor Wang Yi, who is currently serving a nine-year prison Mm -hmm. sentence 
for the the crime, if I can call it that, of leading an unregistered church in China. Uh, Pastor Wang Yi's wife, Zhang Rong, is under basically under house arrest. She is constantly monitored. Her contacts, her meetings, anybody who tries to talk to her, they are constantly monitored as well. Uh, Their son Joshua, the last report we heard, every day he is picked up in a police car, taken to the Communist Party school where he can be indoctrinated all day long with Communist Party doctrines. And so that's just one family. That's just one example of what it costs to follow Jesus Christ in the People's Republic of China. What a privilege and honor it is for us to partner with them in the faith for the sake of the gospel, to simply bend the knee and pray for them. And we'll talk in a few moments about how we might pray for them. I I did want to point out that in recent years, China's government has forcibly closed hundreds of churches. They've arrested or detained hundreds of pastors and church members and prohibited the online sale of Bibles. So there's a desperate situation there. They've also installed more than 170 million facial recognition cameras, and many of them are poised near um, or at churches in an effort to identify those who attend worship services. That's absolutely correct. The issue for the Communist Party is control. We want you to wake up every morning and think about how can I be a good communist today? How can I please the party today? If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to wake up every morning and think, how can I glorify God today? How can I honor him today? And so the Communist Party sees that as a direct threat to them. They're trying to control you, and so if you have submitted to Christ's control, you're not doing what they want. You're an enemy of the party. That's why you see churches being torn down. That's why you see pastors going to prison. The issue is controlling the hearts and minds of the people, and they know that the gospel takes away control from the Communist Party. There's there's some confusion, I think, in the West as to whether or not the Communist Party is opposed to churches because there are the government controlled three self-patriotic movement. Those are churches. Um, they submit to control of the Communist Party officials. Can you explain the difference between an underground or house church and these churches that are essentially sanctioned, although controlled by the communist government? Well, that, that is exactly the difference. The, the underground church, or uh, some people call it the family church, the house church movement, they say the head of the church is Jesus Christ. That, that's who is the head of our church. And the three self-patriotic movement, by definition, the head of the church is the Communist Party. It is a part of the Communist Party apparatus. The control of those churches is under the Communist Party. And, you know, one of the things that has changed, though, in recent years is being in a registered church does not give you immunity from persecution. We have seen registered churches torn down, registered churches having the crosses taken off of their buildings, registered church pastors arrested to prison. If you won't come under that control, and, and remember, the control that the Communist Party wants is they decide who can lead the services. They decide where and when the services can happen. No one under 18 is supposed to be at a registered church congregation because they don't want you confusing the children while they're still trying to indoctrinate them to be good communists. So that's what it means to come under that control of the Communist Party. And obviously, a lot of Christians look at those regulations and say, well, sorry, I can't do that. I can't seed my children's upbringing to the Communist Party. I'm going to raise them in the church. I'm going to raise them in the scriptures. Uh, And so that's just one of the regulations. But like I say, the important thing to know is 
it's no longer a get out of jail free card if you're in a registered church. Those churches are being persecuted as well. Mm. And what, again, what a privilege it is that we can connect with them. We can pray and encourage them by our prayers. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Todd Nettleton. He's Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration for Voice of the Martyrs USA. He's also the host of the Voice of the Martyrs radio program. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Todd Nettleton, Chief Media and Relations uh, Message Integration for uh, Voice of the Martyrs. He's also host of their radio program, joining us to talk about an effort to encourage believers here to pray for persecuted believers there during these Winter Olympic Games. Now, in just a few hours here, we're going to witness the pageantry and the inspiring athletic accomplishments that uh, are part of the, the Olympic Games. But there is an element uh, of this host government that they don't want us to see. Uh, in fact, things have accelerated. It's become more difficult uh, for dissidents, if you will, uh, because of the Winter Games and the desire of the communist government to uh, to hold those images from us. What what aren't we going to see during these opening ceremonies and beyond? Well, one of the things you won't see is a million plus Uyghur people mm-hmm. in Western China who are in concentration camps. Most of those are Muslims. But there are Christians in those concentration camps as well. Uh, You won't see any mention of Pastor Wang Yi that we talked about serving nine years in prison. You won't see any mention of Pastor John Thao, who is serving seven years in prison. These types of things will be completely out of sight. And, And one of the interesting things about this particular Olympic Games is because of COVID, there is even more of a separation between those who are there for the games and those who live in China. In fact, Chinese citizens have been told, if you see an Olympic car get in a car accident, don't try to help them because we don't want to have a chance of COVID spreading from the citizens to the Olympic participants. Uh, And so that is even more separation this time than there would normally be. And then you imagine a, a reporter or a camera crew trying to get out and go to the prison where one of these pastors is, or go and visit Xinjiang in in Western China, where the Uyghurs are, it's just not going to happen. The Chinese government is going to make sure that there aren't any disturbances, there aren't any troublemakers loose during these Olympic Games. Well, we have the opportunity to make some trouble in the heavenlies when we bow the knee and pray for those who are persecuted in the People's Republic of China. How can we pray for pastors, church leaders, and for Chinese believers? You know, there's a lot to pray for as it relates to our brothers and sisters in China. But but one of the things is just praying that, that the leaders and the pastors will stand firm on biblical truth. They are under so much pressure, so much pressure to compromise. Pray that they will stand strong. We can pray for those who are in prison. Uh, and sometimes it's very simple. Pray, pray that they get enough to eat today. Uh, pray that they will sleep well tonight and not be afraid or in pain or under threat. Uh, those types of really practical prayer requests can kind of guide us. Uh, the other thing is to pray for the spread of the gospel. And this includes the Communist Party members. The Bible tells mm-hmm. us to pray for those who persecute us. Let's pray that people in the Communist Party, uh, even including President Xi Jinping, will have some kind of an encounter with Christ himself or with a Christian person that would lead them to think more about the gospel. So let's pray for the advance of the kingdom 
even during the Olympic Games, maybe through someone who's visiting as a part of the Olympics or, or simply the advance of the kingdom from one Chinese Christian to another Chinese person. You know, I recently saw the movie uh, Sabina, and I was reminded of the tremendous outpouring of love and grace that was extended to those who were persecutors of uh, of the worm brands, but also her f- extended family, those who took the lives of her family members. She extended love and grace and mercy. And that individual came to faith in Christ. We have access to the throne of grace. We can approach the one who is the Lord of all on behalf of believers and to pray for the persecutors. And I so appreciate your making mention of that because we tend to limit our prayers to those who are already followers of Christ. But evangelism is an important part of the, the life a blood of the church in China, and we can pray in that regard as well. I traveled to China many years ago on several occasions and smuggled Bibles in. I was there to witness uh, in some rural areas where Chinese believers received a copy of the scriptures for the very first time. And I tell you, it changes you uh, in a tremendous way to see their love of God's word. Um, we can also pray for the safe distribution of Bibles in every part of China, which is increasingly more difficult. It is increasingly more difficult. You mentioned the surveillance cameras, literally hundreds of thousands of surveillance cameras with facial recognition software. Mm -hmm. Uh, Imagine trying to do a secret delivery of Bibles in a place where there are cameras in on every street corner, watching every intersection, watching every building. How, How do you do a secret delivery of Bibles in those kind of circumstances? So absolutely, that's something that should be on our prayer list is for the safe delivery of God's Word into the hands of China's Christians uh, and also into the hands of, of curious others. That You know, the Bible's a great evangelism tool as well. To pass that on to someone else, pray for safe delivery of Bibles. Now, there's been a significant crackdown on the church in China, on believers and church leaders in China. Uh, we've seen in recent years the the growth of the church there grow exponentially. What's the story there now under the crackdown that we've uh, we've heard about? Is the church still growing? Are believers still sharing the gospel? How would you characterize the, the, the church today? The church is certainly still growing, and Christians are still sharing the gospel. One of the things I really admire about the Chinese church is uh, they don't just see it as the pastor's job to share the gospel. They see it as everybody's job. You know, if, if you're a part of the church, part of your job is telling other people about Jesus Christ. It has become more difficult, and one of the things that that we would say five or ten years ago about China is is we would talk about persecution at the provincial level. Like in one province, there's a lot of persecution. It's really hard for the church. But, hey, look over here in this other province. There's not a lot of interference. The, the church is operating without a lot of pressure, a lot of persecution. That is not the case in 2022. The, the persecution now is driven from the national level. It's the national government in Beijing. It is Xi Jinping himself, who is pushing out this philosophy. Before he was president of the country, he was a provincial leader, and his province was one of those that was known for persecuting Christians. So he has brought that philosophy with him from the provincial level. Now he's the head of the whole country, and he can push that out from Beijing. We had reports last year from Christians in China that Beijing is literally sending out trainers to the local police all over China training them in how to, what they would say, enforce religious regulations. But what they really mean is persecute 
religious minorities, persecute Christians, persecute Muslims, persecute Tibetan Buddhists. And so our Christian friends in China said, when we knew that those trainers had come to our city, we knew things were about to get worse for us. And so I think that's an important thing for people to understand. This is driven at the national level from Xi Jinping himself. Well, I, I am reminded of the uh, Apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, who was a persecutor of believers. And I now feel personally challenged to pray for the president of China, that he would come to know Christ, that there would be uh, some miraculous visitation and he would, would come to know. It seems like an impossible thing to pray for, but the God I serve is capable of penetrating whatever um, opposition there might be in any part of the globe. So I would encourage others Amen. to do the same. And again, what we want to encourage our listeners to do is to pray for China, to pray for Chinese believers and church leaders and pastors and those who live in rural areas, those who are uh, in prison, who are experiencing persecution because of their love for Christ and their willingness to faithfully serve him. And you can join with Christians all around the world who are committed to pray for persecuted believers in China every day during the Olympic Games. You can add your name, as I did, to Pray for China 2022, and all the words are spelled out, pray, F-O-R, PrayForChina2022.com. And um, there you can join with many others in committing to pray during this Olympic season uh, for believers in the People's Republic of China. And my guess is... When we've done that every day for this uh, Olympic Games, we've, we've started to develop a habit and maybe we'll be more mindful of and faithful in our prayers for persecuted believers elsewhere around the world as well. That's absolutely true. And one of the great things about this campaign, we already have Christians in 117 countries that have committed to pray for China during the Olympics. So uh, we, this is a worldwide campaign of the body of Christ praying for the body of Christ in China during these Olympics. You know, when I visited there, again, it's been several years ago now, but one of the things that I um, was challenged by was the expectation. The, the Chinese believers I met there just thought we were praying for them. I mean, that's what believers do. We, we are encouraged and inspired because we know as faithful followers of Christ that you're praying for us. And I have to admit to being ashamed because I had not been praying for them. I wasn't even thinking about them. Uh, it's a tremendous encouragement and an expectation that as fellow members of the body of Christ that we are praying for one another. I've met with believers uh, from Myanmar who were living in Thailand. They'd been run out of the country and they were training to be missionaries. And the expectation was, we know that you're praying for us. And they thanked us for that. As as members of the body, we need to take seriously the connection that we have with one another. One of the things I wanted to mention before our time is, uh, is up is the global prayer guide that can help us learn how to pray for our persecuted Christian family elsewhere around the world as well. Can you tell us just a little bit about it? Absolutely. The Global Prayer Guide is updated every year, so the brand new 2022 version is out now. It is a free tool from the Voice of the Martyrs. Our website is persecution.com. Again, persecution.com. You can request a copy. It's 100 pages. It's full color. And it is, like you say, it's a prayer guide. What's happening with Christians in China? Who is the persecutor there? How hard is it to get Bibles in that country? And it's not just China. It is all of the countries where Christians are persecuted. Mm -hmm. So you can 
beside your Bible. You can set it on your breakfast table where you have your prayer time. And each day, pick a country, and it educates you to help you pray more specifically and more effectively for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Yeah, absolutely. And if we believe what the scriptures say about us, then our hearts ought to be drawn to praying for one another. Now, once again, we want to encourage you maybe to begin by praying for China 2022. You can go to PrayForChina.com to join with believers all around the world who are committed to pray for persecuted believers in China every day during the Olympic Games. If you watch the opening ceremony, be reminded to pray. As you stumble on an event that's taken place, be reminded to pray for believers uh, in uh, in China. Uh, Todd Nettleton, I appreciate so much the work that you do and help keep us informed and challenged as believers here who are um, challenged in some ways, but certainly not persecuted to remember those who are being persecuted as if we ourselves were being persecuted. Thank you so much for joining us. It has been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. God bless. Bye-bye. Again, PrayForChina2022.com. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to wrap things up in uh, just a few moments, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the House of Representatives is considering what they call America Competes Act. It's a 3,000-page House response to the Senate's United States Innovation and Competition Act. It'd be nice if they'd come up with, you know, kind of shorter names. Anyway, the $318 billion bill's ostensible purpose is to address the wide-ranging challenge that China poses to America's homeland, its economy, global interests, and values. Well, the bill does everything imaginable but make America more competitive, let alone deal with the breadth and depth of the threat posed by the People's Republic of China, the Communist Chinese. And... uh It's very expensive. The only way to get a viable bill that actually enhances the interests of the nation is to start over. Well, the debate on Thursday on the House floor isn't going to save the bill. Most of the amendments that the House Rules Committee has allowed, it disallowed far more, uh, to be offered are, well, pretty much small ball. The amendments that are in any uh, significance will make the bill worse. And some of the bad ideas in this bill include... Uh, doubling down on wasteful energy spending. It includes a proposal to require the U.S. government to build 30 uh, gigawatts of offshore wind energy by 2030. Another proposes to expand the already bloated federal research and development infrastructure with a new agency on ocean research. There's an amendment to create a freight rail innovation institute to develop zero emissions trains and an amendment establishing yet another climate education program and grant to indoctrinate school children on global warming. Now, this is um, the Competes Act that is supposed to address our um, uh, competitiveness with communist China. Well, enshrining in U.S. policy a demand for African countries eliminate the use of extradition of fossil fuels is also a part of the legislation, and China has invested significantly in Africa. The U.S. should uh, be helping African countries, all of which urgently need cheap, reliable energy to power their economies and improve the health and well-being of their citizens to create the mix of energy solutions appropriate to their desires and their context. Well, depriving Africa of this will stir resentment among our African partners. It will hobble American efforts to respond swiftly and as effectively as possible to the energy crisis in Africa. 
It also includes micromanaging the movement of empty shipping containers. The bill enacts an Open Shipping Reform Act, which, among other things, will disrupt supply chain by slowing container movements, driving costs and risks to shippers, bringing its goods or factory inputs. Uh, It uh, imposes uh, major new reporting requirements on private securities offerings, including Regulation D offerings, which I won't go into, but they're the most important means of raising capital in the U.S. and central to maintaining dynamism and innovation in the U.S. economy. It also includes an amendment expressing the sense of Congress that it is the national interest of the United States to join the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Now, this is, um, well, what many of us consider wrong policy. If anything, the last decade has shown how little that treaty restrains aggression in the Pacific. But it's also important to point out that ratifying this agreement is the job of the Senate and it's refused to do so now for more than 25 years. So the House weighing in, eh. An amendment to repeal the 25% cap on U.S. contributions to U.N. peacekeeping is also included in this rather large, bloated bill. Uh, This is pending a written commitment from the Undersecretary General of Peace Operations that they will engage regularly with the U.S. on peacemaking reforms. End quote. Well, the U.S. has already charged more than the combined assessment of 186 other countries. So increasing... Uh, the 25% cap um, doesn't seem to address that issue. Well, these and other amendments pull Congress away from the sort of things it could do to actually confront the China threat. Yet even as members push back on them, it's important to stay focused on the costly non-China related provisions already baked into either this bill or its center, uh, senator, I should say, Senate precursor. Well, the reason why the amendments um, on uh, uh offers so um, meager a a solution is because the intent uh, is just to get into negotiations with the Senate and pass and get signed into law the things in the underlying bill. Uh, So it's not intended necessarily to pass as is, but to generate uh, what would be a consensus of the House and Senate in coming up with something else. Well, the America Competes Act dramatically expands controversial trade adjustment assistance from a roughly $500 million program to a more than $3.3 billion program to give wasteful handouts to well-connected workers, unions, firms, communities, and community colleges. This is always a hard-fought issue in the Senate, generally involving Republicans trading support for it to in exchange for a Democrat concession toward free trade. Now, with the concept of free trade now dying on Washington's vine, no such compensation is in the offing here. The House bill gives almost $100 billion to well-connected businesses without regard to their ties to China. Hence, the name is irrelevant. Uh, the best advi- um, advertised part of this funding will go to the semiconductor industry, but it's actually more than this. The bill authorizes an additional $45 billion for virtually any other manufacturing that can meet an overly loose definition of critical, as well as $2 billion, especially for low-end auto-related chips. Well, the Senate's Innovation and Competition Act, which is the Senate version of this same kind of legislation, um, it offers National Science Foundation research grants worth more than $190 billion to a list of government-determined areas of focus. None of it, or the additional $160 billion in research funded by the House bill, is sufficiently protected from being stolen by China. So China is sort of an afterthought, but it is the title, and 
presumably the intent of the legislation. Well, the Ideas in the America Competes Act, most egregiously irrelevant to the China challenge, are summarized in the president's official statement of administration policy. His support for this purported attempt to help Americans compete with China hinges entirely on non-China related priorities, including the expansion of the Department of Energy's Office of Science, expansion of the National Science Foundation, the creation of regional technology and innovation hubs, and expansion of the Manufacturing Extension Partnership Program and Manufacturing USA Institute, none of which has that connection to China that this uh, legislation is purported to address. And while the bill is unsalvageable and reconciling it with the Senate is unlikely to fix it, there is a way forward. Now, some of the suggestions that are being offered, uh, there are amendments to the bill that were denied by the Rules Committee to be considered on the House floor. Also, the Foreign Relations Division of the Senate's Innovation and Competition Act had several positive provisions and its House counterpart, a couple. Well, the two committees are trying to work out compromise to serve as a base for a bigger package when the House Democratic leadership blew the whistle on the process in order to pursue the more politically directed America Competes Act package. So politics always um, rears its ugly head when politicians are making decisions about the way forward. Well, the House China Task Force and the Republican Study Committee have also produced comprehensive proposals that could be used as a basis for starting over again. And at this point, that is unfortunately the only sensible thing to do. But is it the thing that will be done? Well, only time will tell, but we'll continue to keep our eyes and ears focused on what may or may not happen in the days ahead as this legislation ultimately ends up in um, um, a conference in which concessions from the Senate and House side presumably will be made or at least the attempt will be made. Keep our eyes on that. Once again, the focus of much of the world will be on the People's Republic of China and their efforts to uh, present the Winter Olympic Games in such a way that is a tremendous propaganda piece, of course, keeping under wraps much of what has raised concerns and alarm among not only Olympic athletes, but other observers who are suggesting that athletes, in fact, should speak out against genocide, um, what they're calling, in fact, the Genocide Games while they're there in China. Now, the Beijing Olympics are just hours away, and human rights activists issued a call to action against the uh, Beijing Olympics on Friday, and they're employing athletes and sponsors to speak out against what they call the Genocide Games. Now, how likely is that? Well, the 2022 Winter Olympics will be remembered as the Genocide Games, according to a former human rights activist in China, who is now a visiting professor at the University of Chicago. Otherwise, such brazen statements could not be made. The Chinese Communist Party's purpose is to exactly turn the sports arena into a stage for political legitimacy and a tool to whitewash all those atrocities, he went on to say, referring to the ruling Chinese Communist Party. Chinese crackdown, rather, under the hardline ruler Xi Jinping, we spoke about just moments ago with my guest, Todd Nettleton, has been felt across wide swaths of society. Hong Kong authorities crushed anti-government protests in the city in 2019. The central government in Beijing passed a national security law aimed at stifling dissent, leading to the arrest and act of activists rather and disbandment of civil society groups. And of course, there's the imprisonment of uh, Uyghurs. There's the imprisonment of um, political dissidents, read um, Christians and Muslims, others in the country that haven't uh, marched in lockstep with the Chinese Communist Party. 
for which there has been a call to pray uh, for not only uh, believers who are struggling uh, there, but also to pray for those leaders that they, too, may have an encounter with Christ. And wouldn't that be an incredible thing? It's been done before, as I mentioned in my conversation with Todd Nettleton. I think about um, Saul before he became Paul the Apostle was a persecutor of believers. It's been done before, and we pray that God might do it again in this uh, communist country. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Just a reminder, tomorrow we'll share a bit of the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian Outlook. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.